chapter 14. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Find your manners. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And then he answered them saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they, were, how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a special supper, do not ask your friends or your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, it's our deepest desire, not so much to understand the words, that's the beginning of it, Lord, but to to see you and to hear your voice, to know that you've been speaking to us as if you were right here, Lord, and you are in so many ways. Certainly, you're omnipresent, Lord, and you've, as I said earlier, promised to be here when the church gathers. And then those of us who are born again, we have your spirit living within us. And so, Lord, it, it, it should be that we would hear you today and that having heard you, Lord, we would be enriched and filled with the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These words, Lord, that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, They're just as inspired today. They're just as alive and powerful today as if they had just come from your lips. And I pray that our expectation, Lord, would be that we've been in the presence of the living God, our risen Savior. We all pray in the name of Jesus and those who agreed said, Amen. I have a timely tip for high school and college grads as you are interviewing for work. Mind your table manners. The human resource director of a major corporation responsible for hiring new college grads as the company's future executives has a unique way of separating applicants. After narrowing down the field through the usual interview process, he takes the remaining candidates out to dinner to observe their behavior. Watch a person as he eats, the man says. That will tell you all you need to know about their character. Manners, he explains, are what you do, not for yourself, but out of regard for others. Wow, I would never get a job. (laughs) Jesus had awful table manners that offended a lot of people. 
If you study the various dinners he attended, you see several examples of social etiquette mistakes he made. Let me give you just two. He ignored the ritual hand-washing the religious Jews practiced before each meal. And he accepted invitations to eat without regard for a person's social standing, often eating with sinners. He also ignored the spiritual manners of his day by healing on the Sabbath at the dinner table. Jesus was a social and spiritual embarrassment, at least as far as the Jews were concerned, but not as far as his heavenly Father was concerned. Jesus was the poster boy for heaven's rules of social and spiritual manners. In our story, the Pharisees were shocked that Jesus did not mind their manners. Jesus turned the table on them, exhorting them to find his manners. We want to find our spiritual manners. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you find your spiritual manners when you remember you are a servant. And number two, you find your spiritual manners when you forget yourself. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, you find your spiritual manners when you remember you are a servant. A common complaint is that kids are disrespectful of people and property. Part of the problem is that they are no longer being taught proper manners. Manners are out, at least in our pop culture. I admit I was in line at Carl's Jr. at the wrong time. It was just as students from Hanford West were arriving for lunch. Anybody done that? It's terrifying. I thought I was okay. Third in line. At least I thought I was third in line. Then I was fourth, then seventh, and then tenth as more and more students simply joined their friends in front of me. But I'm an adult capable of a kind of foresight that these students do not yet fully possess. As a second cashier came forward and announced, I can help the next person in line, I said, that would be me. And I went over there and formed my own new line that I was at the head of. I can do bad manners. It was a coup d'etat of bad manners. Anyway, in our story, the Pharisees were watching Jesus to accuse him of violating God's laws. Jesus never once violated anything in God's law. In fact, he fulfilled everything in it, keeping it perfectly. What Jesus violated, what he ignored completely, were their man-made additions that had become traditions. Jesus always acted in perfect harmony with heaven. As you see him at this dinner, he is teaching you the proper spiritual manners you need for life on earth. His first lesson is to remember you are here to serve others, not to be served. And so in verse 1, Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. I don't know why, but I always think that's funny. Anyway, Jesus was invited to an important person's house for a formal meal. It was a coveted invitation, the kind that told other people that you were somebody. I don't have to tell you that it didn't impress the Lord at all. There was a man with dropsy. Today we call it edema. Whether because of a heart problem or a kidney problem or something else, he was retaining fluids. 
His condition was terminal, given the limited medical expertise of the first century, but it was not an emergency. He was not going to die before the Sabbath ended. The Pharisees had so twisted Sabbath-keeping that they taught you could not treat anyone on the Sabbath except in life-threatening emergencies, and then you could only barely save their life. And then you could start working on them in earnest after the Sabbath was over. In their warped world, the man with dropsy should have been ignored until sundown Saturday. The Pharisees were watching Jesus closely. They may have purposely planted this guy at dinner in order to test Jesus. We don't know, but if that's so, what a sad commentary on their religion. Not only would they not help this guy, they used his suffering to their evil advantage. There's a great use of contrast in this whole episode. The Pharisees thought they were watching Jesus, but he was watching them. Not only was Jesus watching them, he knew perfectly well what they were thinking. And so in verse 3, And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. They ought to have answered and said no, because that is what they believed. They couldn't, however, for at least two reasons. For one thing, to say no would be to admit that their rules lacked mercy. It was one thing to sit around and interpret God's law during a theological discussion or a debate. It was something else entirely to apply those conclusions when they would have a detrimental effect on one of God's dearly loved children. Sometimes we don't make the connection between what we think we believe and what is happening in the community of believers in terms of, well, this is what I believe, this is what I think the Bible is teaching. In their case, well, we believe that you shouldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath. And how that translates is that if you've got somebody suffering, they just need to go on suffering. And, and even almost anybody can think, how does that honor and glorify God? Why would God create the Sabbath day and all of these different things? I recommend that you always consider where your conclusions about God lead you. If they lead you away from grace, mercy, love, acceptance, forgiveness, those kinds of things, guess what? Your conclusions are wrong. And I don't care how much you believe them or, or how you've lined them out in what you think to be what Scripture is teaching, if they're contrary to the heart and nature of God, you're wrong. And a lot of doctrine has to be judged against the revealed will and heart of God. For another thing, this question was a rebuke to them. Whether they answered no or yes, everyone knew they couldn't heal anyone on any day. Jesus was the one doing all the miraculous healings, not them. It tended to expose the failure of their religious system. In other words, they, they were tempting Jesus. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And it exposes the fact that they couldn't do it even if they wanted to. They couldn't break their own law if they wanted to. And, and so it really didn't matter. Jesus was the one doing all the healings. It reminds me of folks who put a higher premium on theological education and training 
rather than recognizing God's gifting in a person's life. Now, don't get me wrong. I like to make fun of it because it's good for a laugh, but I don't have anything against education or or higher education or theological training or any of that. I think it's fantastic if that's the path that God would lead you on. But you don't have to be a, a, a master of divinity or have a Ph.D. to understand the Word of God. And you can have those things and not have any real gifting from God to teach the Word of God. And so we just need to be cautious and careful about what we respect and, and what we recommend. Uh, you know, these guys, these guys were the religious leaders. They were the experts in the law. And, and it had led them to the conclusion that you shouldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath day. But in reality, they couldn't heal anybody on any day. And, and Jesus was going around healing everybody in the name and in the power of, of God, proving he was the Messiah. And so we just want to test somebody according to the word of God. And we want to see the gifts and the talents and the abilities and the callings that they might have. And so they kept silent. I call this the silence of the wolves. I thought that was cute. There should be a groan going through the congregation right now. I think that, you know what? You think of some of this stuff. Go ahead. <laughs> Submit it to me and, and I will, I'll use some of it. Every now and then somebody has a good idea. Rarely, but no, that's not true. Jesus was the Lamb of God. Think of it. Jesus was the Lamb of God among wolves seeking to tear him up. But they were helpless against him this is significant because you're sent out as a sheep or a lamb among wolves and oftentimes we want to get defensive or we want to defend ourselves or we want to be you know uh trained as attack wolves or something like that or attack lambs excuse me against the wolves and, and you don't really need that you don't need any defense other than the word of god now a subplot in this story for your encouragement is to realize that christians do not need power or position or possessions of this world in order to accomplish God's purposes. You are ambassadors for heaven. You are invested with all the credentials and power you need to represent Jesus on earth. Whether you're talking to uh, a beggar on the street or you have an opportunity to talk to uh, the, the, uh, the ruler of a nation, it makes no difference. You have the credentials and the power of heaven. And, and there's, you, know, you don't need anything that the world would add to you. All you need is the opportunity and the power of God. And so you should be encouraged by that. Verse 4, they all kept silent, and he took him and healed him and let him go. No fanfare, nothing fancy. Jesus completely and totally healed him on the spot. Now, I don't want to get into this too much this morning, but this is a good, it's just so, just matter of fact that I like to point out so often, uh, you know, when you see things maybe on television or in some church settings or, or uh, crusade settings, it's so dramatic, isn't it? These, these healings or so-called healings that take place. I mean, there's a sense of drama and theater almost as they're screaming and shouting and writhing and, and sweating and hankies and, you know, all kinds of stuff that's going on until a person is, quote, unquote, healed. I didn't see it, but Pam was telling me the other night they did a special on uh, 
Again, NBC, our favorite network. Uh, just before Revelations, uh, they did a special on exorcisms. And, and I think the result of it was they probably happened, but most of them are phony. You know, that, and, and they had this one case where they, they, they were eight hours exorcising a demon out of this guy. Eight hours of just... You know, I remember the movie The Exorcist years ago. How many of you will admit that you saw The Exorcist? Raise your hand. No, don't. But anyway, I mean, it was like a long, okay, we're in this for the long haul. I mean, we need to get out the rosary and the holy water and the crucifixes. And I mean, this is like, this could take days or weeks of, of battle with the devil. Jesus says, uh, hey guys, hang on, man with dropsy, hold that thought. Guys, let me ask you a question. Is it lawful? And they quiet, okay, you're healed. And he's completely and totally healed. I mean, so... You know, let's, why, why is that, why are we so enamored of that sense of drama, of that theater? Why, why do we make things bigger than they are? Uh, to me, it's more powerful the simpler it is. It's like, wow, what just happened? Didn't that guy just have dropsy a minute ago? I, was, I, I said earlier, it makes me laugh because my family, you know, we're from the old country and Whenever we would drop something in our house, we said we had dropsy because we had no idea what it really meant, you know, and stuff. So whenever I read dropsy, I think of that and uh, just a window into my past there that I'm sharing with you. So anyway, nothing fancy. Now, they let him go. Sounds to us as if the man was being held almost as a captive. It may be a reference to the former disease, certainly when you have these kinds of terminal illnesses you feel like you're being held captive by them but I think it indicates something else too in a sense this poor man had been held captive by a false religious system that not only ignored his needs it was willing to use him in a terrible manner to meet their own needs whether they invited him there on purpose which is likely or he was just there and they could use him they he was their captive so that they could use him against Jesus. Now, let me say this. God's people are never to be used as a means to an end. Even if the end is something positive or good. In other words, you shouldn't get an idea about something that needs to happen or you want to happen or whatever and then kind of drive people in that direction and and coerce people in that direction and 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 pressure and manipulate people in that direction because it's ultimately good for them we just should never use people in that way they are never means to an end they are the end every person that comes into the bible study or the church they are god's end that's what he has in mind he wants to love them and show them his grace and mercy he wants them to receive his forgiveness of their sins he wants them to be edified and built up and strengthened not twisted and manipulated into giving more money or to serving more or any of those things those will come naturally if a person responds to the love of God. And so we want to be very, very careful about this. In the church of God, in Jesus Christ, the end doesn't justify the means. The people are the end. Always keep that in mind. Verse 5, Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, 
will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. And they could not answer him regarding these things. For smart guys, they were pretty stupid. Their Sabbath rules allowed them to help their livestock out of trouble. How much more should they have wanted to help a human being made in the image of God? Again, I emphasize that if your conclusions about God and the Bible don't promote grace and mercy, abandon your conclusions and start over figuring out who God is. It's also it's interesting, I mentioned just a second ago, you know, for smart guys, they're pretty dumb. We get intimidated by intelligent people. People who can string words together and every now and then they use a big word that we don't understand. And the tendency is to want to be on that level and to meet them on that level and to hit them with the same barrages that they're sending our way. I don't know that anybody... I'm guessing that nobody was smarter there that day than Jesus. What do you think? I mean, he probably probably the smartest guy at the table, I would say. And they have all their religion and their theological weight and arguments and the tradition of hundreds of years of rabbis debating back and forth. I mean, they are the, uh, the intellects of their day. They're the elitists of their day. Everybody else pales in comparison. These guys are, you know, the ones that understand God's law and all of this. Don't you think Jesus could have just wiped them out with some kind of a magnificent intellectual, logical argument? I mean, you know, something that would have just, just completely fused their minds together into mush. Instead, he says, uh, you know, every now and then one of your animals falls into a ditch and you get it out. hi up hi up I mean, it's like the most, it's the, it's the most common thing you can say. Now, why does that encourage us? Because you and I are not among those people. We are not among the intellects. We are not among the elite. Not many of those people even get saved, the scripture says. Some, but not many. And we don't need to feel second rate. We don't need to feel as though we have to meet them on their field of battle with their tools. I don't have to come to meetings with a thesaurus in one hand, you know, and an encyclopedia in the other. I can just say the simplest thing. Now, will it shut them up? Probably not, but it doesn't make them right. You know, just because a person argues with you doesn't make them right. Those of you who took debating in school, you could debate either side, right? And it didn't matter what you believed because you sometimes had to take the contrary side and you could win that debate. But it didn't make you right. It just made you the winner of the debate. Hey, you already know you're right. You're on the right side. You know Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of whether you can win the debate and match you know, pound for pound the, the length of words that these other individuals have. You just need to stay simple. Stay simple. It's the simple answer that throws people into a loop. They don't know how to deal with that. I cannot overemphasize our human tendency to know it all. God will always be greater than any system of thinking we devise. We never want to reduce Him to our way of thinking. We want him to elevate us to his way of thinking. These guys remain silent again. It is symbolic. Religion with its rules and rites and regulations and rituals is always mute. It cannot even answer life's simplest questions. Now don't get me wrong, religion has a lot to say. And most of what it says 
is things that you don't need to know, but ultimately religion cannot save you. It is just a lot of noise. When it comes to what really matters, it's mute. In the Pharisee book of manners, you did not heal on the Sabbath. Jesus ignored the spiritual manners of his day. One key point is to see that he was acting as a servant rather than one being served. Reclining on their couches around the low table, getting ready to eat, the Pharisees are a picture of folks thinking they should be served. Jesus, as God's servant, got up and did what needed to be done. It reduced him in their thinking. It lowered him on their social scale. But in heaven and on earth among believers and here today, it revealed the heart of God. Now, just because you are serving, it doesn't mean you're a servant. Serving as a servant involves the proper attitude. It involves ignoring wrongs and not demanding rights. Now, this is unusual for us because we live in the greatest country on uh, the face of the earth, and we have a fantastic legal system, and you know we have rights, and I'm all for that. I like having rights, and I don't like to be wronged. But in the kingdom of God, we have to think differently about these things, and we need to realize that we should ignore the wrongs done to us and not demand our rights if we're going to be servants. And it requires that you quit thinking in terms of what is fair and walk by faith. Life, the Christian life, is not fair. You can always find someone better off than you who shouldn't be. But you can always find somebody worse off than you who ought not to be. And so the key is to not find anybody other than you and to think about your own life and to serve God in it. Whenever we serve without the heart of a servant, we become just like these Pharisees. You find your spiritual manners when you remember you were a servant and you find your spiritual manners when you forget yourself. That's the purpose of the rest of the verses. I mentioned that Jesus was watching them. He had seen how the invited guests arrived and were greeted. They scrambled for the best seats, the seats closest to the host, considered the seats of honor. And he noticed that only certain people had been invited, only the upper crust of their society. Jesus knew that they were appalled at his seemingly bad social manners. He gave them a lesson in spiritual manners. He started by addressing the invited guests first, then the host. And so he told a parable, verse 7, to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Obviously, it would be embarrassing to be asked to move to a seat furthest from the host. I mean, you know, you just have to imagine if I came right now, and, and, which I've been wanting to do all morning, and said, you know, Gene, would you, would you please you're wanted, get out of here, you know, just go to the fellowship hall. That's all right. 
I mean, it's embarrassing. And, and some of us have been embarrassed in situations. I mean, not like when you're at Angel Stadium and you're, you're in somebody else's seat and you know it, you know, and you're hoping they don't show up, you know, for their box seats. And, oh, gee, I forgot. I thought I had bought these box seats, you know, and then they kick you out. But uh, not that I would have ever done that, ever. <laughs> Humility, uh, well, anyway, the, the parable is meant to illustrate a spiritual truth. If you seek to exalt yourself, you will be humiliated. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Humility is not simply thinking lowly of yourself. It is not thinking of yourself at all. That's what real humility... People say, well, how do you, what is humility? It's really not thinking of yourself. It's preferring others to yourself and putting others first. When I was a brand new baby Christian, we used to sing, let's forget about ourselves, magnify the Lord, and worship Him. Does anybody know that song? Anybody remember? I'm not going to sing it. That would be trite. It would be fun, but trite. But I have to ask these things now because last week when I mentioned super chicken, I couldn't believe that no one had heard of super chicken. It's part of American pop culture. But, you know, I admit that I know things that are weird and stuff. So, so I have to ask now. I mean, I'm thinking, oh yeah, that song. And Pam says, honey, what are you thinking? No one's heard of that song. So a few of you, let's forget about ourselves, magnify the Lord and worship him. Jesus forgot about himself. He left heaven, setting aside his glory. He took upon himself a body of flesh. He was fully God, but fully man and always subordinated himself to the will of his father. He was equal to the Holy Spirit, but was filled with the Spirit and then led by the Spirit. If anyone was wronged and could claim rights, it was the Lord. But instead, he led a life of servanthood, eventually leading him to suffer and die shamefully on the cross at Calvary. He humbled himself and he was highly exalted. If you need help with humility, consider how much you have been forgiven. Contemplate your own weakness and inability to live the Christian life without constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus also had a word for the spiritual manners of hosts. In verse 12, Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, first, let me say this. Jesus was not teaching that you should never invite friends and family over without also inviting a homeless person. And so, you know, you say, hey, come on over for lunch this afternoon. Go by Staples and pick up that one guy or whatever. I mean, Jesus isn't saying that. He's getting at motives. The idea here is to not be the kind of person who is seeking something in return. I'm all over this because when I was in sales, this is what you, I mean, you're always posturing and positioning, inviting, and you're trying to put deals together and things like that, and everything has a secondary motive, or at least it did with us you know, in terms of, of how you could get more business and all. And everybody expects that. It's the, it's, that's why they call it business. You know, it's the world. That's how the world operates, you know. And, and uh, whether today it's telemarketers or whatever, everybody's trying to get something out of everybody else. But we ought not to be like that in our Christian lives. 
And so we don't want to be seeking something in return. Forget yourself and think about those whose needs you can meet. Don't go around searching for something you think you need. Reach out to others. Your needs are met by meeting the needs of others. I often hear Christians commenting that their particular needs are not being met. This is a a standard theme in our lives. I've said it, I'm sure, myself, and I hear it all the time. Uh, You know, whatever it is, my needs just aren't being met. Whenever you hear yourself saying something along those lines, you ought to start singing, let's forget about myself and magnify the Lord and worship Him. Can you imagine Jesus saying to His disciples, guys, I just don't feel like you're meeting my needs. Now think about it for a minute. Jesus is our example. You know, He didn't go around saying, you know, I, I'm just not, I don't feel fed. I'm just not getting ministered to at the synagogue services or, or whatever, whatever you, know, you might think of. He came to serve, not to be served. We should come to serve, not to be served. Whether you come home or to church or to work, you are there to serve, not be served. The Christian life is not about you. It's about others. What about your needs? Well, first of all, many of your needs are what we would call felt needs. You feel you need something that is not being provided, either at home or at church or at work or at school. I hear this all the time in marriage counseling. My husband wasn't meeting my needs. My wife didn't meet my needs. The church doesn't meet my needs. My career doesn't meet my needs. If you have Jesus, then His grace is sufficient for you. It may be that your felt need is God's design to teach you contentment with Him. Second of all, if each of us is thinking about others, then all of our real spiritual needs will be met. Others will be ministering to me, maybe not in all the felt ways I think are necessary, but certainly in the ways that God has deemed advantageous for me. And so if I have any confidence at all that my brothers and sisters are humbling themselves, walking in humility, looking to meet needs, then they're going to see my needs and meet them, or at least God is going to be ministering to them about what my real needs are. And so I don't have to worry about my needs, really. I can just cast those onto the Lord and say, Lord, I'm part of a, a family of believers. You know what I need, and so I'm going to leave it to you. Not only that, while I am being ministered to, I have the inner spiritual joy of pouring out my life for others. If I want to find my life, I need only to lose it for Jesus by serving others in the power and by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so it's really a fantastic thing to, to quit thinking about your needs. Man, I tell you, focusing on your needs ruins your spiritual life. It's going to ruin it because it's all inward. It's all introspective. And God says, let me worry about your needs. Let others minister to your needs. You meet the needs of others. And if you need an example, take a look at Jesus. Leaving heaven, coming to earth, laying down his life in so many ways as a servant so that we might be lifted up with him. Serving as a servant is what we today would call a win-win situation. 
It, it, just, it just does it. Jesus accepted an invitation, and then he acted as a servant in the context of that activity. He invested even the most common episode of his daily life with spiritual purpose and power. Your daily life and all the little things that occur in it can take on spiritual purpose and power. There are spiritual manners to find and then mind so that the people you come into contact with see Jesus as you drive with them, eat with them, work with them, study with them, worship with them, as you interact with them in a thousand different ways every day. One very simple key to serving as a servant is to watch. Jesus watched the man with dropsy. He watched the Pharisees. In other words, and this is so simple, Jesus paid attention to what was going on around him. He wasn't so wrapped up in himself that he couldn't pay attention to his surroundings. Every year our leadership goes on an overnight retreat to pray and seek the Lord. They never tell me where it is, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. We're almost done. (laughs) Anyway, this year we were exhorted by the Lord along these same lines. We should see the need and then meet the need. That's what a servant does. When you go out to dinner and you're being served by a waiter or a waitress, you'd rather they pay attention to your needs than have to get their attention. They see the need and they meet the need. How many times, hundreds of times, those of you who go out to dinner anywhere where you're being served, you know, how many times have you said, hey, this is a good waiter or this is a great waitress because I didn't even have to ask for water. They refilled my water. They got me more coffee. They brought things. They anticipated my need. You know, they're paying attention to the table and they see that my water's half gone. You know, at a restaurant, it's not a matter of, ha- is it half full or half empty? It's half empty if you're at a restaurant. And you want that kind of waiter or waitress. It, 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 you look at that person and say, man, that person's a good waiter, a good waitress. That person's a good servant, really, because they anticipate the need. That's what a Christian does. You and I should anticipate the need, and we do that by looking around. What, where am I? What's happening? What should be happening? What about that person over there? Hey, it's a lot of fun. It's a ton of fun. You do it at church. I love coming on the grounds of the church because, you know, there's, you can start, you start looking around. You're like a spiritual detective. Every week, every week you can find somebody you don't know. Every week. Why aren't you meeting that person? What, you know, what, go meet that person. Find out. Maybe they've been at church for 20 years. Maybe it's their first Sunday. Who knows? But meet them. Maybe that's the last relationship you'll ever have with that person. Maybe that person is going to be your best friend for the rest of your life. Who knows? Maybe they have a need. Maybe you have a need. Who knows? I mean, you just, what's going on? What is the need and how can I meet that? And it's not something fantastic. I mean, we don't have people with dropsy coming in left and right that need to be healed. I mean, our needs are significant but they're they're different and and god wants to use you and me to meet one another's needs we just need to a little bit break out of our normal way of thinking and look around instead of looking within or looking at one we need just to look around and god will open up our eyes to these wonderful needs and these wonderful relationships if you're not a believer if you're not a christian then put yourself at this dinner you're one of two people in the story You're the man with dropsy or you're a Pharisee. 
The man with dropsy was suffering with a terminal disease. If you're an unbeliever, you are terminal. You were born spiritually dead in your sins, and you're going to physically die and spend eternity separated from God in hell. You have a spiritual dropsy. You retain your sins, and you cannot eliminate them through any of any human process. Only Jesus can heal you because what you require is forgiveness from God for your sins. You can be healed as immediately and perfectly as the man with dropsy was healed. If you're not careful, you could become a Pharisee. You could get religious, find a group or even just a way of thinking by which you suppose you can improve yourself and earn your way into heaven. But look at the Pharisees in this story. First, they could not help the man with dropsy. They kept silent. All of the world's religions with rules and regulations and rituals and requirements are ultimately mute. And second, these guys were all about their outward appearances. There was no inward change. And that meant that they did not know joy or peace or love. They were more lost having religion than the man with dropsy. And so ask yourself, who am I most like at this dinner? Who do I want to be like at this dinner? And then we just need to act honestly with our answer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this snapshot from the dinner table of Jesus Christ. We appreciate it so much, Lord. There's so much more to learn here, but we have enough to see Jesus in his humility, in his humbling himself, sharing the love of God, the mercy of God, acting in grace towards the man with dropsy and even towards the Pharisees, though he had strong, straightforward words for them, Lord. They were words of love. He spoke with grace and mercy and forgiveness, Lord, had they just received it. Lord, cement and keep all those lessons in our heart for when we need them. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. All right, God is so good. Keep things simple. It's really just a lot easier on us all since we're just simple people anyway. Some of our guys will be here to pray with you after the service. Uh, if you have a prayer request, or maybe you're not a believer and you want to be led to faith in Jesus Christ, then come on forward and just pray with the guys. May God bless and keep you. Uh, rearrange your life so that you can be here next Sunday night. Uh, it just, I can't imagine any place else you'd want to, well, maybe one or two. But anyway, it, you know, as far as Hanford goes, did you see the article in the paper yesterday? How many of you saw the article? Pretty nice. Yeah, that was cool. So it's just a cool time and and, uh, really just a time to encourage one another in the Lord. One of those things that will never happen exactly that way again. And and we want to be thankful and grateful for what the Lord has done. Amen? Amen. All right. God bless you. You are the fuel our spirits burn. The oil, the lamb, the flame, the fire. We are burning. You are the faith, the hope, the love. Peace, the life, the one we are yearning. You are the fuel our spirits burn. You are the fuel our spirits burn. Oil, the lamp, the flame, the fire we are burning. You are the faith, the hope, the love. Peace, the life, the one we are yearning.
You are the fuel our spirits burn. You are the fuel our spirits burn. The oil, the lamp, the flame, the fire we are. Burning. 